0: We are continuing our Advent series, Word Made Flesh. And again, just to state the intended goal, our goal is to see how the incarnation of Jesus, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, was the plan from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Last week, we looked at the first two chapters of the Bible, and and I've joked about this throughout my time here at Redeemer, that I tend to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because they really are so foundational for us as followers of Jesus. And we were able to see how the ordering of the cosmos was God's way of establishing for himself a dwelling place or a temple so that he could dwell with his people in the Garden of Eden. We saw how Jesus fulfilled that temple project, which he then passed along to his church, that we would be the means by which a dying world could learn of the good news of King Jesus. And actually, we're going to look a little bit about that in our text this morning, and similar to a text that was read this morning, the the promise that was given to Abraham that his people would be a blessing to this world. And those of us who are in Christ... We are part of that Abrahamic family who now has that opportunity to be a blessing to the nations. What a wonderful privilege that we have, but what a tall responsibility we also have. This week, we turn to another passage where once again, the presence of God is put on full display. And again, we will see that God's desire is to meet with his people. And it is through this divine presence, which we experience through the gift of the Holy Spirit who resides in us, that we are both comforted and empowered to live out the mission of God before a lost and dying world. So this morning we're going to be in Genesis 28, but before we do that, let me pray very quickly for our time in the word, and then we'll see what God has for us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for Sunday, Lord, the day when your people gather, the Lord's day. Father, be with us as we look at your word. Convict us of sin. Draw us near to yourself. Make us more and more like your son, Jesus. We love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are in Genesis 28, again, an Old Testament passage that we're going to talk about Christmas from. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 22. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. And the first section, as you'll see in your bulletin, fleeing for his life, verses 10 through 17. Our passage this morning begins with Jacob leaving Beersheba and heading to Haran to stay with his uncle Laban. Why is this important? Well, we need to do a little bit of background to wrap our minds around what's happening in this particular test. Remember, Jacob stole his brother's birthright by tricking his father into giving him the blessing. Jacob wasn't a great guy. Now, granted, he's one of the patriarchs. He's a big deal in biblical history. But as a human, as a guy that was kind of living life under the sun, especially prior to this meeting he has with God that we're going to look at this morning, he was a schemer. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He was always trying to trick people into getting what he wanted, which is so interesting because in spite of all of that, he's chosen by God. He's chosen by God. And, and so many of us can probably think through our own lives and, and the way we've schemed and the way we've deceived and, and the way we've lived our lives, yet for some unknown reason, other than the pure grace of God himself, he chose us to be his children. And if that's not grace, then I don't know what is. Jacob was chosen by God, but his actions created a rift between him and his brother Esau. See, Esau, his brother, was not happy about the way Jacob behaved in stealing his blessing from his father. And if you look at me really quick, look with me really quick. In Genesis 27, verses 41 through 45, it reads like this. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob." But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebecca. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from here. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? So here's the deal. Jacob messes with the wrong guy, right? Has anyone ever experienced messing with the wrong person? I, I have. In high school, I messed with the wrong guy. I messed with a guy who was like three times my size. And, and not, not, he wasn't like a fat man. He was a strong man. And, and you can look at me. I've never really been like a strong man. This guy, for some reason, I'll tell you the story because it's funny. I took, we were in the middle of an assembly, and I took his shoe. And mind you, I'm a senior in high school. I don't know why I did this. I took his shoe, and I threw it across the gym because I thought it would be funny. Everyone thought it was funny, but not him. And he basically got in my face, and he wanted to destroy me. I messed with the wrong guy. Now, I was able to work my way around it. I, I, I'm, I'm, I was kind of clever with my words, and I, you know, whatever. I didn't get beat up. Thank God. But anyway, my point is, is that in the same way that Jacob messed with the wrong guy, we've experienced this. We've experienced this. Now let's see what happens because in messing with the wrong guy, he realizes that his brother wants to kill him. And so the feelings that he might be experiencing at this point in time is is probably distress and fear and anxiety. And so he does. He flees. And it says this in our text in chapter 28, verse 10. If you look at me in your Bibles, Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. So, in the midst of Jacob's distress, because he's fleeing from his brother who wanted to kill him, in the midst of his distress, under the night sky, he is visited by God Almighty in a dream. And it is in this visitation that he is reminded of the faithful and promise keeping nature of God. But first, there was a ladder. There was a ladder. And angels were ascending and descending upon it between heaven and earth. This is what one scholar calls a thin space where heaven and earth start to kind of come together a little bit where 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 that that line that separates our world from the spirit realm is blurred a little bit and and, and, and he sees in a dream the, the angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth a couple of things about this ladder it's most likely a ramp or a staircase, not necessarily a ladder and the really in important thing I want us to note about this. One scholar, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he argues that it's the kind of ramp or ladder that would be on the ascent to an ancient temple. Isn't that something? An ancient temple. So again, what shows up in our text but temple? And what do we know about temple from last week is that that was the place where God dwelt in the temple, in the most holy place. And so here we have another scene where God is dwelling among his people. Dwelling among his people. The temple presence of God appears to Jacob in a dream. And and so what is the point? Jacob is dreaming of a place where heaven and earth meet and it's being presented as a temple. Jacob is dreaming of a place where heaven and earth meet. Where heaven and earth meet. This is so important. This is so important. And I think we all know why this is important. We're going to get to it because we were looking at this stuff just a week ago. The the massive importance of the temple presence of God, the massive importance of God's desire to dwell with his people, the massive importance of this, this idea, this theological and biblical concept that what God is doing is bringing heaven and earth together in the same way we pray in the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the goal has always been from the beginning that God would dwell with his people and that the heavenly cosmic presence of God would manifest itself throughout all of creation. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see little bits and pieces of it. And even in the New Testament, as Jesus comes, we see little bits and pieces of it until one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we will finally Be at that place where heaven and earth come together, and we are with Jesus for all eternity. But we're not there yet, so let's keep traveling through our text. Verses 13 through 15. I feel like i got to slow down. I'm going a mile a minute. Verses 13 through 15. It reads like this. And behold... The Lord stood above it. So so imagine in your head, it seems that Yahweh is actually in heaven, standing above this staircase, maybe at the top of the staircase, looking down. And what happens? I am the Lord. And behold, the Lord stood above, and he said, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the covenant name of God. He's approaching Jacob using his covenant name. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father. And the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad abroad, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Identical language to what he said to Abraham. Identical language to what he said to Isaac. This is once again that promise being reiterated that you, your offspring, Jacob, will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so the Lord speaks. He restates that promise that was given to both his father and his grandfather, that his family will be the means by which the world might come to know and experience God. Because I think sometimes when we just say that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth, we don't fully wrap our minds around what that means. It's that they would be the means by which the world might come to know and experience God. And we pick that promise up. We pick that promise up. All the families of the earth. This is the promise given to Abraham and it's the promise that we are still benefiting from today. If you're sitting here as a child of Almighty God, you are benefiting from the promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed. We sit here. We benefit from that promise promise. And what is that blessing? None other than the person and work of Jesus, who is the place where all of these blessings and promises find their resounding yes. A resounding yes in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. And we benefit from We benefit from that. The text goes on. Behold, in verse 15, if you look at me in your Bibles, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God personalizes now the promise, because remember what is going on in Jacob's mind. What's he doing? He's running away from his brother Esau who wants to kill him. So the amount of distress that this man is probably feeling, the fear that he's feeling, which we actually learn about later on in another passage right before Jacob wrestles with God. He's terrified because he hears word that Esau's coming back and he's like, oh my gosh, he's finally going to kill me because he must have forgotten the conversation he had with God in his dream. Which how do you forget that? Well, we all forget God. I think sometimes we're really hard on these Old Testament saints. Like, how did you forget? Or even like Peter, we're like, oh, I would never do what Peter did. We do what Peter did all the time. Every time we sin, we're denying our Lord. And so I think we need to be a little easier on these guys or harder on ourselves. You pick. But he personalizes the promise. And he says, by the way, I know I said the families of the earth are going to be blessed, but I'm also going to take care of you, Jacob. I'm going to bring you back here. Esau's not going to kill you. He's not going to destroy you because I'm bigger than Esau. I'm bigger than Esau. And I think that's an important point to to preach a little bit. The fact that the distress and the anxiety and and maybe some of the depression and the darkness that we're all kind of living in right now, knowing full well that God is bigger than that. He's bigger than that. And He's with us in the midst of it. No matter what it is that we're going through. And everyone's going through it right now. But God wants us to understand that He is bigger than that. But even more so, that in the midst of it, He is at work. He's at work. What's the point? The Lord visits Jacob. At one of his most vulnerable moments, where he is both literally and figuratively shrouded and in darkness. And it is in that darkness that God brings comfort and peace. One pastor said it like this his name's Rich Velotis. He said, God works in the dark. God works in the dark. And what an important thing to remember that in the midst of the darkness, God is at work. And and we can rest on the promises that Jesus gives us throughout the scriptures. I just want to read a couple of them for you. In Romans 8, chapter 35 through 39, it says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, did you catch that? In all these things, you know what the original Greek means for all? It means all. In all these things, lost my spot, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, COVID will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. There's nothing. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9, through it says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Advent reminds us that God works in the dark. The text goes on. Verses 16 through 17, it says this. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. See, Jacob learns in the midst of him fleeing for his life under the dark of night that surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? And why is this place awesome? Because God's presence was there. Because God's presence was there. And so in that thin space where heaven and earth and the lines begin to get blurred, Jacob is is reminded or, or exposed to the reality of God's presence with his people. See, the the, the important thing I think we need to wrestle with is that if you actually travel through the story of Jacob, he hadn't really yet experienced God in the way his father and grandfather had yet. This is his first real experience with God. He was most likely taught about these things, but he had not yet made his faith his own yet, if you will. And I actually want to pause for a second and talk to our, our young people, our teenagers, our, 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 our young adults and kids who are in elementary school. If, if you're here or if you're listening online, maybe I'm going to talk to some of the elementary school kids right here. And maybe you've been coming out to church with your parents for a long time. Maybe you've even been baptized and you've committed your life to Jesus. But, but I promise you that the tests are coming if they have not already come. And you will have to decide if this faith is yours or if it's just something you grew up around. You'll have to decide if this faith is yours or if it's something you grew up around. You will have to decide if you believe Jesus is King. You will have to decide if you want to follow Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. You will have to decide if this is what you want to build your life upon. And that's a decision every single one of us has to make. See, it doesn't matter if we're around it. Because even Jesus said that not all the children of Abraham are children of Abraham. Not all Israel is Israel. There are some who just because they grew up around it, and even if they were circumcised or baptized, even though they grew up around it, they did not yet come to an experience with God and themselves a personal conviction of their own sin. They did not yet put their own faith into the saving work of Christ. See, it doesn't matter what my parents believe. For them it does, for sure, a million percent. But when it comes to me, that's something I need to come to grips with between the Lord and myself. And that's something we all need to wrestle with. We can't rest on our laurels, if you will. We need to follow Jesus. We need to be faithful. We need to trust in what he accomplished on our behalf. And so the text continues. Verses 18 through 22. So early in the morning... Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob calls this place Bethel, the house of God. And this is the same place where the Lord visited Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 8. But this is also an interesting place because later on in the history of Israel, Bethel is marked by idol worship, and spiritual adultery that you can read about in 2 Kings 12. What's the point? Tremper Longman, Bible scholar, he says it like this. The lesson of Bethel, a place of great holiness that became a profane place, can serve as a warning to churches, organizations, and individuals that though they may glorify God at one point in their history or lives, they can turn into a place of sin and degradation of sin and degradation. So there is a warning that's just built into this place that we need to wrestle with as followers of Jesus. We have to wrestle with that warning because many have cried out, Lord, Lord. Many have experienced a spiritual moment in their lives, but if that faith does not carry them through, is that saving faith? And that's the question we always need to wrestle with. Even Paul tells us, right, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. We are not saved by a prayer that we prayed a couple, you know, decades prior. We're saved by the person and work of Jesus. And so that's what we need to trust in. And when we trust in the person and work of Jesus and we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, then we will experience conviction of sin. We will experience growth and sanctification. It's not a straight shot up, and we all know this. It's one of these things, right? And sometimes you can go really low, but but the trajectory is toward glory. The trajectory is toward glory. And so what's the point? As followers of Jesus, we must remember who we are and who we serve. We are to walk in the light of that truth daily, daily. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's a life of regular repentance, of daily, sometimes even moment-by-moment repentance. And, And those of you maybe who, some of you might have even gotten into a fight with your spouse this morning. And there are things that you probably need to repent of because we struggle with the sin nature still. I've said it before. My old pastor used to say it. We are saints, but we still speak in the accent of sinners. We are saints, but we still speak in the accent of sinner. And so we need to wrestle that old way away through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our final point this morning. Greater things than these. But before we do that, some of you might be wondering what all this has to do with Advent. Like, did, did Jonathan just pick some random Bible verses that he wanted to preach on? I mean a little bit, but no, not entirely. The entire point of this series is for us to understand that God's desire to be present with his people is not new. It's not new, but rather it stretches all the way back into the Old Testament as we saw last week to creation itself. And second, this gate of heaven that Jacob refers to in Genesis 28 and the vision he sees, it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the very image of the invisible God who clothed himself in flesh and dwelt among us here on earth earth and so let's look at where this gets fulfilled in John chapter 1 verses 43 through 50 basically Pete I'm preaching all around your text for next week all around it so verses 43 through 50 in John chapter 1 if you have your Bibles open up with me to John's gospel it says this the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee he found Philip and he said to him follow me Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel, and he said to him, We have found him, catch this, catch this. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he begins with Moses. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's like kind of saying, Can anything good come out of, I don't know, what's a place that you don't want to go to? right? Whatever, right? Whatever you think is a bad place, God probably has some work to do with you on that because there are image bearers that live there. Not, not the point, but the point is wherever you think is a place you don't want to go to, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. So he says this, what good, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. I love this. Come and see. Do we have that same sort of posture? Come and see. Come and see. Are we we thinking through this, this, this calling that's been placed upon our lives to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus to the people that we are surrounding ourselves with? Come and see, he says. Come and see. And this is the posture that we need to take with our neighbors, with our family and friends. Those who don't know the Lord, we need to say, come and see. Let me tell you about this man, Jesus. Let me tell you about this man who saved me from my sin. Come and see. And he goes on. Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming in verse 47 toward him. And he said to him, behold... An Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. I think this is so interesting because the passage that this is going to ultimately pick up on is the passage about Jacob. And Jacob was a deceiver. But now Jesus is looking at Nathanael and he's saying, here's an Israelite with no deceit. I don't know if there's a correlation there, but maybe there is. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, and I can imagine his tone of voice. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Like That's all it took. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and catch the language, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Do you catch what's happening here? Do you see what John is picking up on from Genesis 28? Jacob's staircase? Angels ascending and descending. So what do we know about this passage? Well, it begins with the writings of Moses, right? We see in verse 45, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. It begins with the writings of Moses. And Nathanael responds with some confusion that seems to be marked by sarcasm, right? Like nothing good comes out of of Nazareth. And so Philip tells him to come and see. And then Jesus speaks to Nathanael. He reveals himself to him. He reveals himself to him. And what happens? A conversion takes place. A conversion takes place. Isn't this eerily similar to what happened with Jacob? Isn't it the revelation of God Himself that brings Jacob to his knees? And isn't it the same way with you and I that we were blind until God miraculously, through the power of His Holy Spirit, opened our eyes so that we can see the truth of the gospel? This is what's happening in both of these passages. That there was someone who was running because of, of the, the sinful deeds that he committed. And God meets him in the dark. And what happens to us? Those of us who have walked with Jesus, sometimes we forget where we were prior to knowing our Lord. But in the same way, he met us In the dark, and he turned on the lights. The point of what's happening here is that Jesus is the very place where heaven and earth meet, and it is in him where all the families of the earth will be blessed, as he is the very house of God. He is the new temple, he is the one whom the angels are ascending and descending upon. He is the gate of heaven. And so, what was, was Jacob really experiencing? None other than a foreshadowing of the, the man, Jesus, who was to come, the Savior who was to come, the promise that we see in Genesis chapter 3 the, 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 the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent is now here. He's here. And that's what we celebrate on Christmas that he came. And that he saved us from our sins. And that he is going to make all things right again. Everything that is wrong under the sun. Every lie that has ever been told. Every oppressive regime is going to be flipped on its head when Jesus returns. And that's our hope, Redeemer. That's our hope. And that's what we can get excited over as we approach this Christmas season, as we think about the coming of our Lord. He didn't just come as a baby. He's coming back. He's coming back. Praise the Lord he's coming back because we need him. We need him. But in the interim, our job is to tell the world, come and see. Come and see what God has done. Come and see the truth of the gospel that Jesus stood naked on a cross and died so that we can go free. And then three days later, he rose again. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so as we close our time together this morning, there's a few things I want to remind us of. One, It is always an act of divine revelation that brings people to faith and causes them to worship their creator. It's always that. It doesn't ever happen by accident. God is active in the saving of his people. He calls us before the foundations of the world. It's so interesting, right, that Jacob's story is a story of God's election. There was nothing good in Jacob That would have convinced God to want to choose him. But he did. Two, it is through this faith and worship that we are able to be in a relationship with our Creator, a relationship so intimate that God Himself dwells within us through the person and work of His Holy Spirit. I think we take that one for granted. I think we take the the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives for granted. I don't think we fully wrap our minds around the fact that wherever we go, the Spirit of God goes with us. That we are indwelt with the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead. Do you understand that? That is glorious. That is glorious. And third, if Jesus is the house of God and the temple that is being foreshadowed in Genesis 28, then he is also the gate of heaven. The means by which heaven and earth are being drawn together and the means by which heaven is opened up to you and me. God's desire to dwell with his people and bring heaven and earth together is so strong that he was willing to give of his Son, the only begotten of the Father, the one whose birth we remember every year so that it might be accomplished. If you're here today or listening online, these are dark days. But as we have seen this morning, God works in the dark. He did it in Genesis 1 when the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. He did it in Genesis 28 as Jacob was cast out from his home alone running for his life under the night sky. He did it when he sent his son to be born into squalor and he did it on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. It says in Mark 15 at noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three. And then Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. But each time, each time, morning and light eventually come. And this is the case for those of us who have put our faith in Christ. The Spirit of God hovers over the chaos and he will bring us to our Sabbath rest. Think about the days of creation. It starts with chaos. It ends with cosmic rest. It starts in chaos and it ends in rest. And that's our life, Christian. That's our life. It is chaos under the sun. It's chaos, even for the Christian. In fact, it might even be more chaotic for the Christian because we have been called to something. But there is hope. There is Sabbath rest. God speaks into the darkness, and what happens? There's light. All we need to do is to put our trust in Jesus. The one who lived, died, and rose again. The one who rules over all of creation from his heavenly throne. So as we come to the table this morning, we come to remember as always, but we come to be fed, to have our souls nourished by the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus We come to meditate upon what he did for us on the cross and and what he accomplished through his resurrection. And we come knowing that one day this world will be fully redeemed and we will see our Lord face to face and we will worship him for all eternity. This is what we celebrate on Christmas, that through the person and work of the word made flesh, we have Peace with God. We have peace with God. That's what it means that all the families of the earth will be blessed. That we now have access to God Almighty through the person and work of Jesus, the gate of heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the promises. Lord, your word isn't just a book. It is, but it's so much more than that. It is the very promises that you give us, Lord. It is the inspired word, the authoritative word of God that gives us hope in the midst of despair. And Father, we are not crushed, Lord. You will raise us up on the last day. Father, you will see us through the evening and allow us to awake in the morning and worship. Father, that is what you promise us, Lord God. And, Lord, in this season, Lord, as we, as we anticipate the this, this second coming, Lord, we remember your first coming, Lord. And we remember the hope that we have and the peace that we have. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that as we come to your table, Lord, we would experience that very same peace, that you would nourish our souls with the glorious grace of your gospel, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.